what I am. They do call me the working man. That is why I'm here in Stu Hart's podcasting dungeon for the second two-week period in a row. Not dropping the ball anymore, Chris. What do you think about that? Uh, You know, I'm just here ready to give you guys another episode of the Will to Power Hour brought to you today by the greatest band uh, the great, well, I don't know, Led Zeppelin might be the greatest classic rock band ever, but Rush is up there for sure. Um, yeah, just uh, plugging away. Uh, how you guys doing? Uh, you guys can't talk to me right now, but I uh, just feel obligated to ask how you're doing for some reason. You could tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at Uppity Hick. Uh, same on Instagram, so you can go comment comment what you think on my uh my you know the pictures of my dog uh that will be exciting um that's that that's about it that's you know the housekeeping we get that out of the way uh so today you know in the news it's kind of winding down at this point which is why i'm glad i get to record this and release it today um in the news we've been hearing a lot about what's going on in israel in regards to the situation between Israel and Palestine and the Israelis and the Arabs who live over there. Um, You know, we've been hearing a lot about that for a long time. It's not like just this past week, but this, you know, the last like 12 days or so, two weeks, somewhere in that area, we've been hearing a lot about uh, tensions escalating. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that situation um, I definitely have a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I have a position on that situation. Um, and it's not a popular one. It's honestly kind of, you know, for, for me and Chris who are trying to do this podcasting thing and I mean, it's just for fun. It's not like we depend on it. Uh, but Talking about this stuff can easily get you pulled off of the internet. Uh, You know, I listen to a lot of people who share my position on this situation and they're constantly getting pulled off of the internet. You're not allowed to talk about this unless you have the, uh, the correct media approved opinion. So... We'll see. We'll see how this goes. We're, you know, we're kind of a small fish in the pond, so I don't really think that anything's going to happen. Um, but you never know. You do never know. So I just wanted to, I mean, I'm not going to give a super detailed history of this conflict. So, you know, things are going to be kind of chronologically out of order at times. Uh, I would like to do an in-depth episode or a series of episodes on Israel and their... Um, I, I don't know, trying not to editorialize too much, but I, I, I want to say shadiness, Israel's shadiness. But, you know, this whole situation has to do with Arabs who were living in that Palestine region being displaced by Israeli people, uh, Jews from mostly Europe, um, starting... You know, the the Zionist movement started, uh, it probably started a long time ago, but it really picked up steam in the late 1800s with uh, a guy named Theodore Herzl. 
They call him the father of modern political Zionism. He wrote a book called Der Judenstaat, which means the Jew state, in the late 19th century. So for people who don't understand how the centuries work, that's the late 1800s, not the late 1900s. Um, so, you know, a lot of people think that the establishment of Israel circles around World War II and the Holocaust and, you know, the Allied powers feeling, feeling bad for the Jews and what happened to them um, in Germany and Poland and all of that. Uh, but it's actually much older. Um, you know, it goes back... Well, I, I shouldn't say much older because another thing that people say about this conflict is... And I was guilty of this. This is what I thought for a long time. People say, oh, it's millennia old. This is a, a millennia old conflict. Thousands of years of hatred and, you know, religious strife. But that's not true. Um, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Uh, but so, yeah, he wrote... Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, the Jew state. Um, and I just think that that's, that's interesting. And they call Israel today, they call it the Jewish state. Um, and I think that that's interesting because somebody else, another group who's been in the news for the past few years, they, uh, they, they have something called a state that has a religion in front of it, too. I think it's the Islamic state. Um, so I wonder if there could be any comparisons between the two there. Maybe we'll touch on that as we go, too. So what is political Zionism? Political Zionism is a branch of Zionism aimed at establishing for the Jewish people a publicly and legally assured home in Palestine. Uh, so they're taking the initial steps to obtain uh, a grant of land, some area from some government, uh, from you know the established powers of governments and states in the world that they can control, that they can have a, uh, you know, a place in the world to call their own and to protect Jewish culture. Um, and, you know... I understand that because the Jewish people have had a hard go of it, you know, for a long time. So I understand the early political Zionists uh, wanting to create that. But I think that over the years, uh, Zionism has turned into something different. And we will address that in this podcast. So kind of the birth of political Zionism came you know, Theodore Herzl wrote that book, uh, Der Judenstaat. And after that, there was something called the First Zionist Congress, where a bunch of Zionists met up in Basel, Switzerland, and kind of talked about their opinions, what they think should be happening, uh, to formulate a plan to start creating a Jewish state. So this happened in 1897. Uh, Theodore Herzl in that, that first Zionist Congress referred to the Arab Muslims that live in Palestine as friends and brothers. So the idea that these two factions have been at war with each other uh, for millennia is just nonsense. It's definitely not true. Another one of the main orders of business at the first Zionist Congress was to create 
the World Zionist Organization, which is a non-governmental organization that promotes Zionism. Um, you know, founded at the the first Zionist Congress. So, you know, basically what the World Zionist Organization, the purpose of that organization is to start raising money and building a system to help Jews immigrate to Palestine. Um, and that's kind of where the immigration of largely European Jews to Israel began. Um, and as I said before, I understand why they wanted to do that. Uh, I Terrible, terrible things have, ha- have been happening to Jewish people throughout history. Uh, you can, you know, well, you're really not allowed to. You're not supposed to question why maybe those things are happening. Um, but I, I would like to do that at some point. Um, you know, I, I think the, the victim thing, you know, they're just these helpless people and, you know, things just keep going wrong for them for some reason over and over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that maybe you should look inward. Uh, you know, I don't, mean that to sound, you know, like victim blaming. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I guess depending on your point of view, that may be exactly what I'm doing. So the World Zionist Organization is formed. And like I said, they're in the business of raising money and facilitating that immigration to Israel. Uh, some of the people who were the presidents of the World Zionist Organization uh, Theodore Herzl, who we had mentioned earlier, he was one of them. Another guy who will become important through uh, in this story. I don't know how much I'm going to bring him up in this podcast, but he's definitely an important figure in Zionism. His name is Chaim Weitzman, and there are like eight Chaims in this. I'm not going to. Chaim Weitzman is the only one I'm going to talk about. Um, but yeah, there's a bunch of Chaims. And uh, another one, he was president of the World Zionist Organization two times. And another guy who was president of the World Zionist Organization twice was David Ben-Gurion. Um, so these, uh, these guys go on to be very important figures in Zionism. So that World Zionist Organization, it's a very powerful and influential organization. So... Things really start getting interesting for Zionism in World War I. Um, through the Ottoman Empire, who that's who was in control of this area during the World War I, you know, the beginning of World War I, um, you know, like the area that is what we call the Middle East, you know, up into Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, um, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire was in control of all of that. The Arabs who lived in that er- at that area were happy, more or less, they were happy living under Ottoman rule. Um, but, you know, people, other nations in the world see an opportunity and they look to exploit it. Uh, you know, you almost can't even blame them. But people from Great Britain started getting in the Arabs' ears who lived in that area And they kind of convinced them that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the Arabs of this area were to govern themselves? Uh, And understandably, 
that was appealing. You know, even though they were more or less happy living under the Ottoman Empire, it makes sense that people are, you know, they would look for the opportunity to govern themselves. Now, this, um, you know, this dabbling in foreign affairs by Great Britain kind of changes that attitude that the Zionists had in the beginning of this for the Arabs. You know, they were calling them brothers and friends. And uh, I think it's like, we're all sons of Ishmael, um, which the Turks, the Ottomans, the, you know, they're from Turkey. They're not really, you know, they're Muslim, but they're not really Arab. But, you know, that we're splitting hairs here. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of shifted it. You know, when Great Britain is dangling this carrot of Palestine in front of the Arabs saying, hey, we'll let you govern yourselves. The Zionists are like, no, that's that's going to be ours. So you can't do that. So now I guess we just have to get rid of these people in some way or another. So that's kind of the, you know, that's where that switch happened. And I mean, World War One, we're talking 1917. So... You know, these people who act like it's been thousands of years have no idea what they're talking about. And I used to be one of those people. Um, you know, the the Philistine people, the, the Palestinian people, um, they've been there forever. Alexander the Great invaded there and, and was killing these, like, basically these same people. And that area has mostly th- historically been occupied by Arabs. Um you know, there's a small Jewish population who lived in a, an area called Haifa. Um, and, you know, that's where the stories of King David and whatnot come from. Um, that's that's where those stories were developed. So there there was a Jewish presence there, but this idea that they, that it was a Jewish state back then is not historically accurate. We'll just put it that way. So being that a massive war is going on, a literal world war, World War I, um, you can imagine that the powers involved on either side, they're jockeying for power. They're looking for how we're going to cut this up, you know, cut this pie up once we've won. And um, Great Britain and France come to something that is called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and that is named after the two diplomats who, you know, basically drew this plan up. Um, so basically, they're, they were talking about how they're going to divide up what was currently the Ottoman Empire after their victory in World War I. A lot of the areas with significance in the story, that's, that, you know, that's exactly where this stuff is happening. So Great Britain... Um, it makes them a particular power player in all of this. Great Britain is hugely involved in especially the early. Um, no, they're all involved all the way through, but they're particularly important. Like the Zionists are going to Great Britain, like hands out, like, please help us in the beginning of this. So, you know, that and I mean, so are the Arabs kind of the Arabs who were happy living under Ottoman rule got convinced to rebel against the Ottoman Empire. So they're, they've been promised this land too by Great Britain. So that's making things, you know, just all kinds of complicated, that Sykes-Picot agreement. Uh, 
Um, another thing that is significant is the Balfour Decla- Declaration, um, which was a public statement by the British government in 1917 announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, um, which was then an Ottoman, you know, an Ottoman region with a, a small minority Jewish population. Um, let's see. What do we have next here about the Balfour, Decor- blah, 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 the Balfour Declaration? Um, it, was, it, it was a letter, basically, written from um, the foreign secretary of Great Britain, who, whose name I don't, his name was Balfour, I know that much. But it was a letter to, and break out those tinfoil hats for all of you conspiracy people. The letter was written to Lord Walter Rothschild. So that should, if you're a conspiracy guy, that's uh, making the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or something. So all these rich and powerful Jewish people are behind the scenes pulling strings, like trying to, they want that area. They're pulling strings trying to get that, that region um, granted to them. Um, but, you know, if you say that, if you say there are Jewish people working, powerful Jewish people working behind the scenes, pulling strings, trying to make things happen, that's an anti-Semitic trope. You're not allowed to say that. Uh, everybody does that kind of stuff, by the way. Uh, pretty much every nation in the world is guilty of that kind of thing. But for some reason, you're not allowed to accuse Israel of it. That's a big no-no. So something to consider there. Um so Heim Weizmann, um, he sold the British I- into helping them based on these, like, uh, playing to, like, basically playing to Jewish stereotypes. I mean, that's kind of what people thought about Jewish people back then, uh, for, you know, maybe for reasons. Maybe it was all just racism. Maybe it was all just, like, racism and... Uh, religious hatred that caused people to think that way. Um, but Heim Weizmann is... So Heim Weizmann, he was a like a scientist and a professor, and he came to prominence and started getting the ear of the British government because he... I forget what exactly it was, but the the war effort needed some kind of chemical to make, like, I don't know, like make gunpowder or something like that. And they had a shortage of it. And he had a process that, like, greatly sped up the way that that material was made. So that's how he got, you know, started getting the ear of the people in power. Um, so, yeah, he starts talking to them and starts saying... You know, there's all these powerful Jewish people out there and, you know, I've got some quotes that I'm going to read later and they're interesting. But basically he's saying you don't want to make these powerful international Jewish, you know, I don't know, magnates, um, you know, very rich, powerful people. You don't want to make them mad and have them be on the other side. You don't want to have them helping you know, Germany in the First World War, you want them helping you. So offer to take care of us, give us something, and we'll be on your side. So naturally, the Arabs in that area, they hear about this Balfour Declaration, and they're very concerned because they had things good under the Ottoman Empire, and Great Britain told them, hey, wouldn't it be nice to govern yourselves? And, you know, they thought, yeah, it would be. 
nice to govern ourselves in this area that you basically have promised to us. Uh, and then they hear that Great Britain has also promised the Jewish people, the Zionists, that area. So tensions are building. You know, yeah, that is uh, not exactly what you want to hear. Uh, and uh, again, I'm skipping around a little bit. I'm just ta- right now. I'm just kind of talking about these important documents: the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Declaration. Another one is the White Papers, which came much later. It was in the 30s. So, you know, before World War II. Um, and what it did was restrict Jewish immigration into Israel. You know, Israel, or I'm sorry, Great Britain is, you know, they're playing both sides of this. So they have to give and take some. They got to take care of these Zionists. They got to take care of the Arabs. Um, at least long enough to keep them uh, to keep things under control. They don't want a giant revolt. In, the be- in, the, in World War I, they need the Arabs to keep fighting the Ottoman Empire. And I'm sure the Zionists are doing something too. Um, but they need the, those people in those places. And later, once that war is over, they just don't, you know, they've gotten through the Sykes-Picot Agreement, they've gotten control of this area and they don't want the people living in it to be revolting all the time. So they put, like I said, a restriction on Jewish immigration into Israel, which then pisses off the Zionists. The Zionists are mad. It's like, hey, you said that we would be able to create a Jewish state here. How are we going to do that if we can't have Jewish people immigrating into this region? Which, you know, it makes sense. Um, At this point, though, once the white papers come out, there are a lot more Jewish people in this area than there used to be. So the power dynamics have changed at first. When the Jewish people first started immigrating into Israel, they're a super minority. Um, They don't have a lot of political power. They basically have no political power. But the Arabs who are living in that area, they're not they're not bad to the Jews at first. Uh, You know, at first, who cares? I mean, you've got these people coming in. They're not really starting any trouble. Uh, you know, just give that a little while. Um, I mean, you know, the Arabs are going to cause some trouble of their own, too. I don't mean to put it all on Israel, but uh, we'll, we'll get we'll see what's going on. Um, so now now that I've covered these agreements, I kind of want to talk about how the Zionist movement breaks down. So Zionism is a movement and. Like any movement, there are going to be, especially like political movements, there's going to be right-wing and left-wing branches of this movement. Uh, In Zionism, the left-wing is called labor Zionism. Um, So Theodore Herzl and, you know, later this was championed by Chaim Weizmann. That was called political Zionism. And all of this is kind of political Zionism. Uh, so, it, you know, that's kind of like the umbrella term. Then it kind of branches off into, you know, there's more factions that I'm going to talk about. But I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, in the United States, we have the right and the left. And that's Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, you kind of know how the issues break down along those lines. Um How those issues break down along those lines for Zionism is something that I'm still not 100% sure about Um, because, you know, the things that they call right wing 
and conservative in Israel are not what we would call them here, you know. Um, so, the, you know, it's I, I'm still trying to figure out how that actually breaks down. I mean, I can I can tell you some of it and we'll get to it. But so basically the labor Zionists believe that a Jewish state could only be created through the efforts of the Jewish working class settling in the land of Israel and building a state through the creation of a progressive Jewish society. So, you know, those progressive Jewish, uh, that progressive Jewish society, you know, they're talking about in in the early days, I don't know if you've heard of the kibbutz, Uh, kibbutzim is the, the plural of that, but, and moshavim is another, it's like they're, they're similar types of entities. But basically a kibbutz or a mashav is like a, a commune. You know, you go live amongst a group of people. You're all doing work, um, you know, uh, and it, it, so basically it's, a, it's like communism. It's like a religious kind of communism. Um, but it's, you know, Zionism is very political too. I mean, it's got a religious element for sure. But a lot of these, I mean, a lot of these European you know, metropolitan Jewish people who are going, they're, they're secular. I mean, they're not that religious, uh, you know, especially nowadays, but, you know, so, you know, lots of commie buzzwords there. Um, you know, Bolshevism and Zionism shared things ideologically, and they were also competing for recruitment of young zealous Jews. So, you know, uh, that's kind of the, the left wing of Zionism the main thing. And for a long time, it was like, what am I trying to say? The most significant branch of the Zionist movement, like the labor Zionists were it for a a while. Um, I imagine that in the way that, you know, here in America, we have the left and the right. And, you know, there's going to be some issues that they disagree on. They agree on a lot more things than people would like to, uh, you know, the people on the left and the right would like to admit. Uh, but you kind of know where those issues are going to break. Um, but in America, the left is unquestionably the more powerful of the two. They're better at seizing power. They're better at keeping power. You know, the right just, they kind of seem like a bunch of idiots. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, basically, I've said this before. Everything that the Democrats were pushing for 10 years ago are the things that the Republicans are pushing for now. And I am curious to know if that's the way that it is in uh, Zionism. Uh, I'm not sure about that uh, because I don't know what the the difference between the left and the right is that much in Zionism. They seem to agree on quite a bit, um, but we'll get to, so, so I'm going to start talking about the more right wing. Um, and I'll, as I read this, you'll understand what some of the differences are. The right wing is called revisionist Zionism. And it was developed by a guy named Zev Jabotinsky. Zev, uh, you know, when these, Jewish people immigrated to Israel. They were encouraged to take Hebrew names. Zev means wolf, which is pretty badass. And honestly, a lot of Zev Jabotinsky's ideology and stuff, I find kind of repulsive. 
Uh, but at the same time, I do think he's kind of a badass, and I think that his his predecessor is kind of a badass too, just in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who will tell you one thing to your face and do another thing behind your back, and it doesn't seem to me. I mean, they're they're in politics, so they're going to be like that a little bit. But Zev Jabotinsky and his predecessor. Menachem Begin, or no, successor, I'm sorry, uh, Menachem Begin, who ends up being a prime minister of Israel. Uh, they seem more like the type of people who don't care what you think and they're going to say what they mean. So uh, that's, uh, that's to be respected. Um, so revisionist Zionism is the right wing. Before Israel achieved statehood in 1948, revisionist Zionism became known for its advocacy of more belligerent, assertive postures and actions against both British and Arab control of the region. So they're not fucking around, basically. Um, you know, you've got you've got the labor Zionists who, you know, kind of want the same things, uh, but they're going to behave with a certain amount of decorum and revisionist zionism says no so revisionist zionism it differed from other types of zionism for uh this term that they call territorial maximalism so you know they had a vision of occupying all of that territory and they insisted that the you know, the Jews had a right to sovereignty over what they call the entirety of Eretz Israel. So all of that area, all of Palestine should belong to the Jewish people. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, that and that includes like more of, you know, more of what was what am I trying to say? It, it includes more of that land than was promised to them. So, you know, they wanted, you know, the kind of traditional Israel area with Jerusalem and what became Tel Aviv. But these revisionists, they wanted like Transjordan too. They wanted parts of Egypt. They, you know, they think that they're entitled to more. Um, so that's, uh, you know, the attitude that the revisionists are going about with. So there was a point in time where, you know, like I said, the Jews were the minority in that area. So they had to kind of walk on eggshells and be careful about what they said. And uh, in 1935, the Zionist exec, I guess it's the, the World Zionist Organization, they rejected Jabotinsky's political ideas and program and refused to say that the aim of Zionism was the establishment of a Jewish state. Because if you start saying, we want to establish a Jewish state, um, you know, that's going to freak out the Arabs who live in that area. So the World Zionist Organization denounced that idea. Zev Jabotinsky resigns from the World Zionist Organization and he founds the New Zionist Organization. So this dude is like, basically just fuck you you know it's like okay if you don't agree with me i'm gonna leave and i'm just gonna do my own thing so he's kind of a badass uh like i said kind of reprehensible in some ways too but um let's see here the early years of revisionist zionism under jabotinsky uh they were focused on gaining support from britain for the settlement 
Uh, once Jabotinsky is gone, they get, um, you know, they start basically attacking the British. And again, this is later on into the line um, during the 30s. Uh, and that's when the white paper happens. And you can imagine the, what I've talked about. The white paper comes out. The labor Zionists are going to be mad about it, um, but they are not going to be as mad about it as these revisionist Zionists. So, um, yeah, so let's see here. What is the next thing? I mean, it's just popping into mind that Great Britain is not free of blame from this. You know, they are messing around with cultures and people's lives um, for the political and economic gain of Great Britain. Um, and I would assume that has more to do with a select few people rather than the whole of Great Britain. So let's see here. Um, uh, revisionist Zionism had a huge, huge influence on right-wing Israeli parties, uh, principally the Harut and its successor, the Likud, which is the party that is in power now. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of uh, Israel, he's a Likudnik. You know, that's the party that he's in, the Likud. So that, that's kind of the two main branches of Zionism. So now we're going to talk about a couple organizations uh, in, in um, you know, the world, the world Zionist organization, the, the Jewish organization. And these organizations are basically what amounts to militia groups, okay? Uh, the main one for the labor Zionists is called Haganah. It's a paramilitary military organization of, Jew, of the Jewish population. Uh, in ma mandatory Palestine, that's what they called. That's what they called Palestine under the the rule of the British. Mandatory Palestine uh, between 1920 and its disestablishment in 1948. Uh, at which point it became the Is Israeli Defense Force, which is you know the modern Israeli military. Um, so uh, how the Haganah got started was it was a union of older militia groups, uh, Bar Gioria and Hashemer is, are two of them, two of the largest ones. These small militias used to protect Jewish communities, uh, which I'm fine with that. I actually would, you know, I like the idea of forming militias and protecting what is yours. Um, and I think that people are a lot less likely to come mess with you if you let them know. It's like, hey, you can do that if you want to, but it's not going to be easy for you. So I'm all good with that, um, but not what it becomes, you know. Uh, so with the end of World War II and British refusal to cancel the 1939 white paper restrictions on Jewish immigration, uh, Haganah starts turning to sabotage uh, the British authorities. Um, you know, they're bombing bridges they're blowing up you know, train rails, uh, blowing up ships, which they're, anybody who follows this stuff knows about, you know, they're blowing up of ships, the USS Liberty, uh, the, the Patria, which um, was a particularly interesting one. May, I think we might get to that here. I'm not sure. 
Uh, if I don't, I'll, I'll bring it up again later. Um, yeah, so, yeah. How Haganah got their money is apparently from arms dealing. They would sell, particularly dynamite was a, a, a big part of it for them, I guess. Selling uh, dynamite from Europe to the United States. They made a whole bunch of money that way. So, uh, yep, here I have it in the notes right here. The Patria, they... This is like late in in Zionist history, um, you know, I, I think this was in the 40s. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't write the date down. But they bombed a boat called the SS Patria that was full of Jewish people because Great Britain had decided that those people were not allowed to be there. So they were deporting them to, I don't know, someplace in Africa. I, I forget exactly where in Africa. But um, the Israeli leadership, they decided to blow that boat up despite the fact that it was full of Jews because they wanted those people to stay. They were trying to build a Jewish majority in that area. So they wanted those people. So they decided to blow up a boat full of their own people. And I mean, a bunch of them died. Um, and a lot of the people who didn't die, you know, they're out there floating in the Mediterranean and many of them were rescued by Palestinian fishermen. So, you know, the bad blood, I don't know. It seems, uh, it seems like the bad blood is, uh, I don't know, on one side a lot of the time or in the beginning. Uh, maybe it's not even bad blood. Maybe it's just like opportunism, but opportunism at the cost of another group of people. So, um, you know, the, like I said, the Haganah was the labor Zionist militia paramilitary group. Uh, the revisionists had their own that broke off from the Haganah because Haganah, they, you know, they were still doing what I consider to be terrible things to the Arab people, but they had a policy of restraint. Eventually they kind of developed this policy of restraint. So still doing bad things, but not maybe as bad as could be done. So this group within the Haganah, they splinter off and form another paramilitary group called the Irgun. And that's a right-wing paramilitary organization that operated in mandatory Palestine between 31 and 48. Uh, it was disbanded eventually by that guy I mentioned earlier, Menachem Begin. So a couple of the things that the Irgun did, uh, they blew up the King David Hotel, which uh, is where the British administrative headquarters for Palestine were, killing 91 people of various nationalities and uh, injuring, I think, you know, about 50 more people. So, I mean, that's, you can call that, uh, let me just finish here. So there's the, the King David hotel bombing. And there's also this thing called the Deir Yazin massacre, which happened in April 9th, 1948, when around 130 Irgun and another group that I'll talk about in a second, uh, just a short snippet. I'll talk about them right now, actually real quick. They're called Lahai. And as the Irgun split from Haganah, Lahai split from Irgun because, you know, these, these Lahai people are just like radical. So they split off from Irgun and they're still working with Irgun during this Deir Yazin massacre. So April 9th, 
April 1948, 130 Irgun and Lahai fighters kill at least 107 Palestinian Arabs, including women and children. Uh, In addition to the killing and widespread looting, uh, there were mass reports of mutilation and rape. And, you know, we're not talking about enemy combatants. We're talking about civilians. We're talking about women and children. Okay, so terrible, terrible things were happening during this Dir Yazin massacre. Um, so, uh, to touch back on this, this Lahai group, they were so radical that in World War II, they wanted to fight against the British uh, because they saw Germany as less of a threat to them than the people whose thumb they were under, the British, even though... You know, I guess they were under the British thumb, but the British were also doing a lot to help these people. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. But these Lahai people, the another thing that they're called is the Stern Gang. Uh, the guy who started it, the guy who like led the split from Irgun, his name was Avraham Stern. So it, they're pejoratively called the Stern Gang. Um, they sought alliances with fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Okay, so let that sink in. These people, during World War II, where the Nazis are doing all of those terrible things to Jewish people, this Lahai group wants to ally with them. Uh, they was like, we will fight with you against the British and the French and all the Allied powers in return for all of the Jewish prisoners in concentration camps being released to Israel. Obviously, that didn't pan out, but... That's definitely a little interesting, you know, historical tidbit there for you. Uh, just, you know, let that one marinate for a little while. Uh, these Le- these Lahai group people were kind of all over the place, though, because once the original leadership, um, you know, kind of, I don't know if he died or what the hell happened, but th- after he left, the the next people who came in and were leading it, they allied with Stalin and national Bolshevism. So, like I said, they're they're just looking for how they can achieve, you know, they're looking for the means that achieve their end, basically. Um, and that's something that all human beings do. Again, you know, everyone does that. Uh, you know, sometimes it's worse than the other. Maybe, maybe sometimes you shouldn't do that. But it's human nature. But... Again, that's one of those things that if you if you say that Israel is looking out for their best interest, you're an anti-Semite. You're not allowed to have an opinion on that. Um, so my contention talking about the Haganah, the Irgun, and Lahai is... So these, these are called paramilitary organizations, militias. If these were Arabs, we would be calling them terrorist organizations. Without question, I mean, these people, I, I told you, they blew up, uh, they blew up a building. I, I don't have anything written down here about the stuff that Haganah was doing. But, oh, they blew up that boat. So that's one thing. Um, I don't have too much about the stuff they were doing, but, you know, they were doing all this same kind of stuff, blowing up hotels, committing massacres, you know, having, uh, having, some freedom fighter or, you know, militia member go up to a market and just spray it with machine gun fire, tossing bombs into, you know, movie theaters, things like that. Um, what does that sound like to you? If somebody was doing that today, 
what would we call them? We would call them terrorists, and I don't think that that is inappropriate. But again, you can't. You're not allowed to call that stuff terrorism because then you're an anti-Semite. So, uh, and all of this stuff is leading to unfair treatment, uh, the displacement and expropriation of the Arab people and their property. Um, You know, in 48... The Israeli people confiscated Arab firearms, but not Israeli firearms. So, I mean, lots of unfair treatment. I mean, I am just scratching. I'm not even scratching the surface of this stuff, okay? If you want to feel, you know, just like questionable about humanity and the things that we can do to each other, go look into what's going on over in Palestine, okay? Um, And take into consideration that the nation doing it is a a huge powerful nation backed by even bigger more powerful nations uh and the acts they're committing they're committing against you know people who live in huts people who live in like little shanty towns uh people who their their main form of you know fighting back is rockets that don't do any damage you know like i heard somebody say that these rockets that everyone talks about one of them would have to hit you in the head uh for it to like really do any damage um but you know they act like uh they they use those rockets as the means or i'm sorry the reason to justify that terrible behavior so you know it's just it's like a lopsided it's like if America was to start picking on, um, let's try to, like Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rico's ours, sure, but like, let's imagine that it wasn't, and we're like, you know, we gotta, we gotta get rid of these people. These Puerto Ricans have got to go. Uh, how do you think that would go? How do you think that would be, pers- or um, you know, received by the international community? Not well, right? But you know. Recently, things have been heating up for um, Israel, but for the most part, they don't really get a whole lot of flack for that. So that's uh, uh, an interesting thing to think about. Like, why is that? Uh, All right. So I'm going to get here. I told you guys I have some quotes and I'm going to read it from some of the quotes from some of the people that I've talked about. These quotes are from that guy, Theodore Herzl, the father of modern political Zionism. Theodore Herzl, by the way, is an Austro-Hungarian Jew. Um, So, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I know that supposedly these Jewish people's ancestors came from that area. Um, I don't know. That seems... I'm not saying they didn't come from that area, but I mean, it's been thousands of years. Are you the same people who came out of there? I mean, have you been bred into something different completely and you still have the religion? So, you know, you've, you know, I don't know that you still have that cultural thing that supposedly binds you to that place. Although we're going to get to, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of the claims the the Israeli claim to that area is based on the Bible uh, and the stories in the Bible. And, you know, we've talked about 
you know, I did that Rhett spiritual awakening and I talked about my, you know, complicated relationship with religion. Uh, but once you start, look, just because they're fictional stories doesn't mean that there's not value in them. But once you start forming policy and moving other people around like pawns on a chessboard for your fictional stories, uh, then I start to have a problem. I mean, you know, and I think a lot of people start to have a problem, except Zionists. Zionists are fine with it. Uh, unless other people are doing it, and then it's a big problem. All right, so let's go with these uh, Austro-Hungarian Theodor Herzl quotes. Zionism aims at establishing for the Jewish people a legally assured home in Palestine. See, here he's calling it Palestine. He knows it's a region, and he knows it's inhabited by native people. Okay, next quote. Zionism demands a publicly recognized and legally secured homeland in Palestine for the Jewish people. This platform is unchangeable. So, again, it's like it could have been, you know, they could have found, yeah, I mean, Great Britain, they're petitioning Great Britain. Great Britain could have, like, you know, found a place for them in Great Britain. Uh, but it had to be um, Palestine because of this relationship that these people's supposed ancestors supposedly had to that area. Um, so it had to be that, that part. Couldn't be anywhere else. Next quote. We must expropriate. I, I used that word earlier, so that's an important word. We might, I, I might look up the definition after this quote. quote. Let me start it over again. We must expropriate gently the private property on the state assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in transit countries while denying it employment in our country. The property owners will come to, over to our side. Both the process of the expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. Let the owners of the immovable property believe that they are cheating us, selling us things for more than they are worth but we are not going to sell them anything back. Uh, that seems, seems kind of underhanded. Uh, let's look up expropriate. I'm going to go to my Merriam-Webster app. Expropriate. Create. All right. The collegiate definition, it's a transitive verb, and it, the first definition, to deprive of possession or proprietary rights. The second, to transfer the property of another to one's own possession. Okay, so that's what he's talking about doing. He's talking about stealing, okay, and really no uncertain terms. He's talking about stealing from these people. He's trying to say it in this fancy intellectual way that makes, you know, and I said earlier, the early Zionists, I understand where they're coming from, but that being said, even though I understand where you're coming from. It doesn't give you the right to displace and expropriate people. Okay. So next quote, philanthropic colonization is a failure. National colonization is what will succeed. So that seems, you know, I don't, I don't hear people criticizing Theodore Herzl for nationalism, which, you know, they just got done 
I mean, some of them aren't even done, but, you know, they just got done raking Trump over the coal for being a nationalist. And colonization, let's not even get fucking started on colonization. That's the devil's work, unless the Jews are doing it. So, next quote. The Jewish question exists wherever the Jews live, however small their number. Where it does not exist, it is imported by Jew immigrants. We naturally go where we are not persecuted, and still, persecution is the result of our appearance. By persecution, we cannot be exterminated. The strong Jews turn proudly to their race when persecution bursts out. Entire branches of Judaism may disappear, break away. The tree lives. If whole branches of Jews must be destroyed, it is worth it, as long as a Jewish state in Palestine is created. Um, so, I mean, I can understand why those early Zionists felt like victims back then because I mean the Jewish people had been victims for a long time again um, I'm not 100% sure about why that is that's something that maybe we'll look into eventually but uh, this attitude is still the same attitude that Jewish people have today this victim mentality and that's a you know a huge thing a lot of these groups have victim mentality and Individuals who have victim mentality are just like, you know, the most irritating people in the world. But uh, I, I do think it's interesting how that kind of vibe in that quote, that's still kind of the vibe that Israeli, you know, the Israeli state and Jewish people have today. So next quote. When we sink, we become a revolutionary proletariat the subordinate officers of all revolutionary parties. At the same time, when we rise, there rises also our terrible power of the purse. Um, I mean, you know, so he's saying here, you, we can't win. If we're not doing well, then we're these revolutionaries who we, everyone wants to get rid of us because we're, you know, like I said, revolutionaries. Um, and then once we're doing well, then we have, you know, we're these powerful people and we're working in the shadows to take everything you love down. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe he's being sarcastic with the last one. Like, oh, then we're these powerful bankers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like he's kind of tongue in cheek. But I mean, do you, you guys know who Jacob Schiff is um, there? And. and I, I talked earlier about Heim Weitzman. That's how he got British support is like saying, hey, there's all these power. This, this is a Jewish guy speaking, by the way. He says, hey, there's all these dangerous, powerful Jews. Don't piss them off. So I don't know. It, see, it doesn't. Again, I think that some of the reasons why maybe these Jewish people have had such a hard go of it is their their attitude I mean it's hard to walk around calling yourself the chosen people and not to have a little bit of a holier than thou thing going on next quote universal brotherhood is not even a beautiful dream antagonism is essential to man's greatest efforts it's interesting I'm just going to leave it at that whoever would change men must change the conditions of their lives that's interesting you look at how the Arab population in Palestine was living before the Zionist influence, and you look at how they're living after, and you wonder that change of the conditions of their lives, 
what kind of change might that make to those men? So just, like I said, chew on that for a little while. All right. So the next round of quotes are from that gentleman, Chaim Weitzman. Um, and he kind of took over for Theodor Herzl. Chaim Weitzman, by the way, was from what is now Belarus. He's Russian. Okay. So another guy, not, not from Palestine. He's, you know, he's a white European guy. Okay. So just consider that. We will establish ourselves in Palestine, whether you like it or not. You can hasten our arrival or you can equally retard it. It is, however, better for you to help us so as to avoid our constructive powers being turned into a destructive power, which will overthrow the world. No comment necessary on that one. Next quote. The poor ignorant Falah, which is Arabic for peasant. So the poor ignorant Falah does not worry about politics. But when he is told repeatedly by people in whom he has confidence that his livelihood is in danger of being taken away from him by us, he becomes our mortal enemy. The Arab is primitive and believes what he is told. Uh, maniacal arrogance much? Um, you know, you just really think that you're better than these people, huh? And... These people believe what they're told, and I think that Chaim Weitzman and a lot of these Zionist leaders, they see themselves as the people who are doing the telling. They're, you know, you're the idiots who believe things. We are the superior people who are putting propaganda out there, basically. Um, so next quote. There are no English, French, German, or American Jews, but only Jews living in England, France, Germany, or America. That's telling for how these Zionists see themselves and these Jews see themselves. Um, they're separate from everyone. They are, you know, on a different plane. Uh, and, you know, some of that could have had to do with, you know, the pogroms uh, that had been going on, especially in Eastern Europe and Russia, you know, that, that will make a group of people, you know, if, if the majority population of an area and it's like not stopped by the government, if that majority of the population is going around killing you and, you know, stealing from you and whatnot, it's going to make you feel other, sure. Uh, but feeling other does not encourage the in-group, you know, the, the popular group, the larger group to take you in, you know, uh, and I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I think that these Jewish people should have had to given up, you know, they should have to give up their identity or anything. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just like saying that, you know, you, there are no English, French, German, or American Jews, only Jews living in those places. I don't know. I think there are a lot of Jewish people who disagree with that. And that's something, that's something to consider. There are Zionists out there. There are Jewish Zionists. But there are also Jewish people who are not necessarily Zionists. Uh, you know, they might have support for Israel in some capacity, but they, you know, they're not afraid to speak out against the, you know, legitimately terrible things that are going on. So now Chaim is going to start talking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, the rest of the, the quotes that I just read were not, you know, flattering, really. Uh, but here we go. 
There must not be one law for the Jew and another for the Arabs. In saying this, I do not assume that there are tendencies toward inequality or discrimination. It is merely a timely warning, which is particularly necessary because we shall have a very large Arab minority. I am certain that the world will judge the Jewish state by what it will do with the Arabs. Uh, he was wrong about that. Uh, the world is not judging Israel by what it did to the Arabs because nobody ever talks about it. You're not going to hear about that on CNN. Sure as shit, not going to hear about it on Fox News. Um, you know, you kind of have to go to independent sources to hear what's really going on over there. So next quote. Palestine must be built up without violating the legitimate interests of the Arabs. Palestine is not Rhodesia. 60 million Arabs, I think the, uh, the comma is misplaced in this, 60 million Arabs live there who before the sense of justice of the world have exactly the same rights to their homes as we have to our national home. Um, you know, Haim talks here like he does care more than some of the Zionist leaders, but like I said, I think he's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth because equating the right of a bunch of European white people to claim possession of a patch of land and actual homes um, occupied by Arabs. Uh, comparing those white Europeans' people's right to do that to the Arabs who live there and have lived there for thousands of years, uh, to equate those two is, um, I don't know, just dumb. I don't know. That's, I can't. I just don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble. So I'm just going to say it's dumb. Next quote. Independence is never given to a people. It has to be earned and once earned must be defended. Uh, so what are the Arabs who are living in Palestine, you know, back then and now? What exactly are they doing? Are they fighting for their independence? Are they trying to earn it? And once they earn it, will they defend it? You know, seems like uh, some double standards. So the next guy that I've got quotes from is the guy I mentioned earlier, David Ben-Gurion, who ended up being the first prime minister of Israel. So I have fewer quotes from him, so we'll get through this one a little bit quicker. David Ben-Gurion, by the way, was from Poland, uh, you know, which when he was born was a part of the Russian empire. So Russian, you know, Polish, Russian, not, not from Palestine. Uh, I guess somebody in his family tree was from th Palestine thousands of years ago. So that's, uh, that's why he has the right to take over that area. So here's the first quote. If I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true God promised it to us, but how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz, but what, I'm sorry, but was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and we have stolen their country. Why should they accept that? Uh, geez, David Ben-Gurion. Um, I wonder if, you know, does the fact that he understands that and the fact that he was just killing the fuck out of those Arabs, does that make him a particularly bad person? I don't know. It's another thing to chew on. Next quote. The present map of Palestine has drawn, was drawn by the British mandate. 
The Jewish people have another map, which our youth and adults should strive to fulfill. From the Nile to the Euphrates. Okay, so I had talked earlier about um, how the revisionists saw their vision of what Israel was supposed to be as larger, more. They wanted to take over more of that area. Um, but, I mean, here you got, you know, the revisionist is the right wing. David Ben-Gurion is, like, the guy on the, the labor movement so, side. So he's, like, he's like a, oh, boy. This, this is a weird comparison, but he's, like, the Barack Obama, you could say, of, of Israel, which is, like, like I said, if you know anything about politics, you know, the, the foreign relations between Israel and America and Barack and all that, you know, that's a very weird comparison, but it kind of works. So yeah, he's like the boss of the left wing side. So yeah, he said he wants to create that state from the Nile to the Euphrates. Uh, it's funny when Germany was saying shit like that, you know, a few years earlier, it was a real problem. You know, Germany under Hitler wanted to take back areas that were traditionally German. You know, you've got Austria, which is, they speak German. Uh, you've got, um, you know, parts of Poland, Danzig, uh, that were given to Poland in the Treaty of Versailles. Like, the Treaty of Versailles cut Germany up, okay? Another, they took the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, or, you know, whatever, whatever it was then. I'm not, don't have the timeline of, you know, that Czech area and the Slovakia area and when they were one country, but yeah, that area, there was a part of that area that was largely German. Most of the people who lived there spoke German, considered themselves German. So, you know, Hitler wanted to take those areas back and that was a real problem. And I understand, you know, on some level, I, you can't just go around killing people because you want to take back an area that was traditionally yours but I also don't think it's wrong of those people in the Sudetenland and in Danzig and in, um, I, I think it was at Alsace-Lorraine in France. It might not have been. It might have been a different area. But those areas that got carved out of Germany and given to France and Poland and, you know, Czechoslovakia, whatever. Um, I understand why those people want to be a part of Germany. They can't be involved in their government. They can't have a say in anything. They don't speak the language. They don't consider themselves Poles or, you know, French people or Czechs or Slovaks. They're Germans. Okay. So it makes sense to me that they want to be a part of Germany. And again, that's a, was a real problem when Hitler was doing it. But when Israel does it, everyone's looking the other way. Everyone's turning their heads. It's not really that much of a problem. So that was the, those were the David Ben-Gurion quotes. Let's go on to the guy who I said I thought was kind of badass, and he's got a badass name, Zev Jabotinsky, who, by the way, is Russian. Again, Russian white dude. So here's the first quote. There is no choice. The Arabs must make room for the Jews of Eretz Israel. If it was possible to transfer the Baltic peoples, it is also possible to move the Palestinian Arabs. Palestinian Arabs that just so entitled um, and what do they feel where does this sense of entitlement come from 
uh, a book of things that didn't actually happen. You know, like King David, who, you know, supposedly lived in that Haifa area and, you know, slayed Goliath with a sling, slayed this giant with a sling. Um, he is like King Arthur. He did not exist. He was not a real person. I mean, maybe there's like something that he was based on, but a lot of it is fiction. And that's what, that's what these people are basing this entitlement on. And like I said, I think I said this earlier, a lot of these people are not even like really that religious. They're pretty secular, but that is still their rationalization. So, you know, um, I think that, I don't know. I just think it's bullshit. I was going to kind of go into my, my complex thing with religion. I don't think it's all stupid, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we should be making foreign policy on it either. Next quote, eliminate the diaspora or the diaspora will surely eliminate you. Um, I think that if we were writing a mini series about this and somebody wrote that line, eliminate the diaspora or the diaspora will surely eliminate you. That would be like anti-Semitic. You'd be like, oh, God, you can't you can't write that. That's not how you know. But no, that's a quote directly from a leading figure in the Zionist movement. So next quote, we Jews, thank God, have nothing to do with the East. The Islamic soul must be broomed out of Eretz Israel. Muslims are yelling rabble dressed up in gruddy, gr what is it? Gaudy, savage rags. Doesn't give you the uh, impression that he respects them very much. Next quote. We are people as all other peoples. We do not have any intentions to be better than the rest. We do not have to account to anybody. We are not to sit for anybody's examination, and nobody is old enough to call on us to answer. We came before them, and we will leave after them. We are what we are. We are good for ourselves. We will not change, nor do we want to. Just imagine a white person and I'm doing white in little quotes because you know as Chris and I have talked about lumping us all into white is pretty fucking stupid but just imagine a white person oh and I'm also doing quotes because uh, I've been saying that the Jews are white people throughout all of this but they don't consider themselves to be white they consider themselves to be Jewish so whatever that means um, but yeah just imagine a traditional traditionally accepted white person saying that stuff jews are the only white people who are allowed to have in-group preference all the other minorities in the world are encouraged to have in-group preference but it's a real problem for white people just double standards abound next quote uh zev jabotinsky was a wordy bastard these these quotes are all very long uh the fight against germany has now been waged for months by every Jewish community, on every conference, in all labor unions, and by every single Jew in the world. There are reasons for the assumption that our share of this fight is of general importance. We shall start a spiritual and material war of the whole world against Germany. Germany is striving to become once again a great nation and to recover her lost territor territories as well as her colonies. But our Jewish interests call for the complete destruction of Germany. So this is Treaty of Versailles bullshit that we talked about earlier. Um, 
you know, it's okay for Zev, who is like the explicit guy who says, fuck you guys. I want Transjordan. I want, I want all the way to the Nile and the Euphrates. Ben-Gurion actually said that. But, you know, Zev is the guy who's known for not mincing words about that. He wants a large Israeli state. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and how do you, you know, you, you got to try to not have this black and white view of what was going on in Germany before World War II, okay? Uh, things are complicated. The, these are human beings we're talking about. Uh, do you think that it might have been easy for Hitler to instigate, you know, hate of Jewish people when he could read them quotes like this? Germany is striving to become once again a great nation and to recover her lost territories as well as her colonies. But our Jewish interests call for the complete destruction of Germany. I mean, how do we feel when, I mean, you know, granted, North Korea is not very powerful. But when when Kim Jong-un talks about, well, we'll wipe America from the map, any of these people, I mean, it's, you know, doesn't necessarily inspire us to like those people a whole lot. So... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that just gave... I, I think that kind of stuff was just giving Hitler tons of propaganda. Next quote, last quote from Zev Jabotinsky. The Jews might become the dynamite that will blow up the British Empire. Um, they're saying... He was saying this in regards to Britain limiting immigration, I believe. Uh, and Britain has been the greatest ally to the Zionists throughout all of this. And he's willing to turn his back on that partnership because Britain had to, you know, alleviate the tension with the Arab population. The Jews did not want to share Palestine. They could have, you know, I support being able to move to different countries. I support immigration. Um, what I don't support is people deciding, I want this piece of property and I'm going to kick you off of it. Uh, that I think is fucked up. Uh, and I think most people think it's fucked up. And I think that even the people who don't think it's fucked up when Israel does it, think it's fucked up when other people do it. So figure that out. Next quotes. Next quotes are from the, the man, Menachem Begin. And I'd just like to take a minute to talk about how awesome these Israeli names are, these Hebrew names, Menachem Begin, Zev, Jab I mean, Jabotinsky is obviously not Hebrew, but um, yeah, I just think that they have very powerful names, Menachem Begin. So his first quote, oh, Menachem Begin, by the way, another Polish Russian. So again, somebody who's somewhere down his family line, those people lived in, you know, Haifa in this Palestinian, Palestinian area. But it's been a long, long time. All right. I mean, somewhere in my past, my family, you know, I, I'm like a Euro mutt. I got a, lo a lot of stuff going on there and some holes that I don't know about. But, you know, it'd be like, you know, I know there's some German in there and I just go to Germany. And I'm like, this is mine. You know, I it, somewhere back in my family, this was this was my home. So y you need to get out and leave. Leave it to me. So, all right. Menachem Begin, first quote. The patrician of Palestine is illegal. It will never be recognized. Jerusalem was 
and will forever be our capital. Eretz Israel will be restored to the people of Israel, all of it and forever. Um, powerful words. I don't really need to say much about that. Israel will not transfer Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza district to any foreign sovereign authority. Because of the historic right of our nation to this land and the needs of our national security, which demand a capability to defend our state and the lives of our citizens. So, so he's basing the right of his people to that land again on fiction, on things that didn't really happen, things that there's zero evidence for happening. And I mean, a lot of the wars and stuff that King David started, it, I mean, we know from, we know about wars from that era. era. It, I mean, it's not like it's a complete mystery. No evidence for that stuff, though. That's interesting. And the feats, you know, the, the, the miraculous feats that God, um, you know, enabled David to, like, killing Goliath, nobody in that area had, you know, there were no contemporary reports of that. Like, oh, this crazy... You know, this crazy Jewish guy killed this giant, you know, uh, we were fighting them and he, he killed our best warrior. There's nothing, nothing like that. So uh, it's hard to uh, imagine that those things were actually happening. You, you would think that somebody else would write that down, you know, but not a whole lot of it out there. Um, so here we go. Next quote. The Egyptian army. Uh, OK, so this is in regards to a conflict between Israel and Egypt. Um, and for a long time, people would act like, like Egypt started it. But here, here's what Menachem Begin has to say about it. The Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approaches do not prove that Nasser was really about to attack us. Let me, I'm going to start that again. The Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approaches do not prove that Nasser was really about to attack us. We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him. So, again, this revisionist crew, Zev Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin and these people, they're not mincing words. They're not going to lie to you. Again, they're going to say what they feel. And I do think that is respectable in some ways because... You know, this is another, like, anti-Semitic trope, but, like, the shiftiness, the working behind your back, that kind of stuff is uh, reprehensible. So, next quote, and last quote. There will be no fraternal strife while the foe is at the gate. And this is a badass quote, and I think that, you know, the liberty movement that I uh, consider myself a part of, I think... It could learn from this one. Uh, this is not a bad quote. This is a great quote. There will be no fraternal strife while the foe is at the gate. So you, uh, you guys can figure that one out on your own. I just thought those quotes were interesting. That's it for the quotes. So the revisionist Zionists, they had a huge influence on, as I said, the Likud party, which is the center-right to right-wing political party in Israel. It was founded by the dude with the great name, Menachem Begin, and Ariel Sharon. Uh, it was an alliance of several right-wing parties. Um, they're, like I said, the party of the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, so they're the, you know, they're the party that is currently pushing the mistreatment of Palestinians. Um, and this is, 
I saw this news article from today. It's a, let's see here. It's a joint press release from Benjamin Netanyahu and Anthony Blinken, who is our secretary of state. Also a big old warmonger. So fuck that dude. Um, let's see. I can tell, this is a quote from Benjamin Netanyahu. I can tell you that I hope that the United States will not go back to the old JCPOA, which is the nuclear agreement with Iran that Barack Obama, the, like one of the few things I think that Barack Obama did right and Trump pulled us out of it. Uh, so I can tell you that I hope that the United States will not go back to the old JCPOA because we believe that the de- that that deal paves the way for an Iran to have an arsenal of nuclear weapons with international legitimacy. Um, This is all bullshit. They have been saying this for 30 years, uh, maybe longer, that Iran is constantly on the verge of creating nuclear weapons. And for some reason, they just keep not getting it done. Um, The nuclear agreement that Barack Obama struck with Israel was pretty good. Um, It definitely stabilize the region as opposed to destabilizing it through giving power to you know nuclear nuclear weapon power to Iran and us pulling out of it like kind of fucks Iran over because now we're like trying to stop them from developing nuclear programs but the only nuclear programs they're developing are nuclear power so you know, we have nuclear power. It's the most efficient form of power in the world, uh, most efficient and most safe. So we're depriving those people of that. So that's something to consider. Um, another quote from here. We also reiterate that whatever happens, Israel will always reserve the right to defend itself against a regime, a regime committed to our destruction, committed to getting the weapons of mass destruction for that end. So... You know, I know that there there are people in Iran, powerful people in Iran, who say that that's what they want, okay? But again, why do you think that the people in Iran feel that way? Why do you think that all of these other Arabs in Palestine feel that way? Do you think it's just because of some religious thing? Or do you think it has something to do with the hundred plus years of Israel just fucking those people over? I don't know. Something to consider. So there's something called the law of return. Any Jewish person has the right to immigrate to Israel and become an Israeli citizen. Uh, And to do this, they displace Arabs from their homes. They expropriate these people's property, these Jewish people. In the past, I, I I don't know what it's like today. It's probably just as bad. But in the past, these people would, these Jewish people would go into an, an Arab home and just squat there and treat the people terribly until the, they were forced to leave, okay? So just straight up stealing, okay? And this is all European people and American people, American Jews, white people, white Jews going over and displacing these very poor Arabs, okay? And the arguments that the Jewish, the Israelis use and Jewish people from around the world used to justify this is, oh, Palestine was never a country. Like I said earlier, Palestine has been a region with these people living in it for thousands of years. Alexander the Great invaded Palestine. I said that earlier, and he was 
He was killing these people's ancestors. Those people have been there for a very long time. Just because there was no Palestinian state does not give anybody the right to go kick those people out of that area. Okay? Another reason or another argument they used to justify it is something we've talked about throughout this it's promised big <laughs> biblically uh okay so it's been promised to you in fairy tales like i said king david is a myth uh you don't get to decide the fate of people's lives based on your myth if i did that that would be a huge problem when the christians did that you know l- Looking back on it now, we look back at the Crusades and we're like, that is abhorrent. But for some reason, no big deal. No big deal at all. Um, Another thing they say is that, you know, the forced diaspora is, you know, that happened when the Jews left Israel and dispersed out into Europe, um, that the Romans kicked them out. Um, I've heard from some people that that never actually happened. I'm going to have to look into that because that's interesting. Uh, But still, the Romans kicked you out, right? It was the Romans. I mean, that's that's how it goes in like the normal history that people get taught. So why why do you get to displace the Arabs? What is that? How, How does that logically track at all? I don't know. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. Uh, another thing, the Holocaust. Um, that was that was Hitler, right? Is Hitler Arab? Is he is Hitler a Palestinian? Um, and even if it was the Palestinians, which it's not, we're in fantasy land now. But even if it was some Palestinians, was it these Palestinians that you're shipping a guy from Brooklyn over to steal their home? And this happens, people. This is not a joke. This is not like some exaggeration by me. This is a thing that happens. People from, you know, New York Jews go over to over to Israel and they they steal the property of the Arabs who are living there. They, they knock their houses down. They build new ones. Um, you know, like truly awful shit. You can go look into it. Please go look into it. Um, there's a guy named Ryan Dawson. He's on Twitter at ANC report. Check him out. That's great. Uh, check out Scott Horton. I mean, Scott Horton is going to give you more Israeli foreign relations of current stuff. And I mean, he gives you some past too, but he's great on the relations, but like what's going on now. Uh, he's great on everything. Check out Scott Horton. Um, uh, the pogroms is another reason all the pogroms that were happening in Eastern Europe and Russia again I don't know how many Arabs were living and in power in Eastern Europe and Russia um, that that allows these Zionists to go fuck these people over so I'm coming to the end here and this actually is going on a little bit longer than I was hoping it would but um, so in my estimation, the Israeli Israel, it's a nationalist, fascist, ethno state. Okay, what does that sound like? It's a government based on racial superiority, and they will admit that to your face. Okay, so me saying this somehow, uh, the comparison I'm about to make. So hold on to your hats. Um, 
I would get in a lot of trouble for saying this to some people. And I might get in trouble, probably not, because like I said, we're little fish in the pond here. But, um, yeah, is I mean, the Jewish people would never make this comparison, but, I mean, basically everything I just said that Israel is a nationalist, they probably wouldn't say they're fascist, but if you look at, like, the mercantilism, uh, you know, the, the corporate welfare, all of that type of stuff, it, it's a fascist state. Um, and an ethno state, they probably wouldn't call it an ethno state either because that's got bad connotations. But what the fuck would you call it? Especially when when they consider themselves a race. Um, and we're going to get to something else interesting about that. Um, yeah, but they consider themselves a race and they say this area is for us. You can't come here. You can't live here. You can't do a, you know, you can't do anything uh, if you're not. Israeli, if you're not Jewish. So, you know, for some reason it's a problem when I say it, but when they admit it, they admit to all that stuff, it's just fine. It's no big deal. Um, so that comparison I said I was about to make, you, you replace the Aryan ideal, you, you replace the Aryans with Jews, and there's not a whole lot of difference between Israel and Nazi Germany. Um, you know, the things that the Jews were rightfully complaining about happening to them in Nazi Germany, Israel's doing that stuff now to the Arabs. And people like Einstein wrote letters that were published in the New York Times that, that called them out. It's like, you're doing what was done to us. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what they said. I, I wonder what the criticism of Einstein was for his criticisms. I, I, I should look into that because I would be interested to know. So another thing that people say about Israel is that we need to support it because it's the, you know, the last bastion of democracy in the Middle East. Um, so when these, these people who leave, you know, Poland or Hungary and go to Israel and claim their house from these Arab people, they're not paying for these houses. They're being given these houses by the government. This is a, you know, in America, we talk this big game like we're against socialism, but then we support Israel for being, a, you know, a democracy. Israel is a socialist state. And you think about what we were talking about earlier with the kibbutzim. I mean, that's a, that's a, a communist idea. Um, so this idea that we need to, to support them because they're the last bastion of democracy. It's complete bullshit. It doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, they're a socialist theocracy. Uh, so it's like a religious kind of spin on socialism. Um, you know, I think about, you know, I, I, at the beginning of this, Israel, the, the, uh, this, like, last 12 days, Israel... You know, they bombed a building that housed Al Jazeera and the Associated Press, news organizations, because they don't want what's really going on to be reported, okay? And their excuse for that was that Hamas was, was being housed in those buildings. Um, yeah, I'm sure that the Associated Press is housing Hamas. That's, uh, that's, that's funny. But there's no evidence for that, okay? They're saying Hamas is there, so we bombed them. So, okay, no evidence for it at all. 
But I wonder, you know, that group we talked about, the Haganah, what exactly is the difference between the Haganah and Hamas? And again, I, there are people, if they're listening to this, who are shitting their pants because I'm making this, this um, comparison. What is the difference, though? They're terrorist organizations. Um, you know, Haganah, in the beginning, like I said, the early Zionists, I understand. So they, you've got these, these paramilitary groups. They're binding together to protect their people. I get it. Okay. And Hamas is kind of kind of doing the same thing. I mean, you've got you've had decades of Israel abusing these people and the Arabs not really being able to do much. So eventually they form into what Israel and, you know, the Zio-Cucked United States call uh, terrorist groups. And I mean, that's what Haganah was. Uh, what's the difference between Haganah and Hamas? What's the difference between Ergun and Al-Qaeda? What's the difference between Lahai and ISIS? They seem like two sides of the same coin to me. But for some reason, the language is all different for some of them. And the perception of one side is completely different to the perception of the other. Um, I think another thing that I think is interesting is it's weird how a lot of American Jews are super liberal progressives, you know? That's a. I think that Jews in America are more likely to be liberal and progressive than they are to be conservative. Ben Shapiro is, you know, a little bit more rare. Um, but these people, because of their liberal progressive kind of values, it makes it very easy for them to speak out against the genocide of the Native Americans. You know, give them an opportunity and they'll tell you how evil it was for these white people, which they don't consider themselves white people. Um you know, the only people who consider Jewish a race are Jews and Nazis. Okay. It's an ethnic category to the rest of us uh, or a religion. And that, that kind of religion is kind of like the binding thing of that ethnic category. You can have, you can have a white Jew, you can have a black Jew, you could have an Asian Jew. It's an ethnic thing. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of these people will criticize what the mean old white people, the mean old European white people did to the national or I'm sorry, the Native Americans. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good what we did. But I also think it's a lot more complicated than uh, a lot of these people will have you believe. Just like pretty much everything they talk about is more complicated than they want you to believe. They want you to believe this side good, that side bad, the end of story. Humans are more complicated than that, okay? Um, you know, coming to the end here, I, I remember a quote. I can't remember who it was from. Was some Jewish guy who was like a reporter, and he said, Israel cannot exist in, Amer in an America first world. Um, so America is not allowed to work for its best interest in, in a world where Israel exists? I don't know. That seems fucked up to me. And you think about all of the uh, aid that is going to Israel and things like that. And I think personally that that should stop completely. You know, I don't, I, I don't, like people like AOC and Bernie, they'll say, 
don't cut off aid. Just make it conditional. Make them, you know, start behaving a certain way if they want the aid. I personally say no more aid to Israel, period. Um, and I mean, it's not just Israel. I don't want to make it seem like I'm being anti-Semitic or anything like that. But I don't I mean, I really don't think we should be sending money anywhere, really. You know, I'm sure that's not a surprise to to you people. Just bumped bumped the microphone there. Um, yeah, so I don't know, just to close on here, just, I don't know, try to imagine, imagine you're home, you're at home one day and somebody shows up and they walk right in your front door, no invitation, no nothing. And they tell you out, this is ours. And if you decide you're like, no, I'm not going they're just going to stay until you do go. They're going to make your life a living hell until you do go. And if you try to fight them back, you're going to be fucked. You know, the law is on their side. Uh, the organization is on their side. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think that a lot of people need to put themselves in the shoes of these uh these Israeli, or I'm, I'm sorry, not Israeli, these Palestinian Arab prisoners. I mean, basically it amounts to them being prisoners in their own homes. Um, just imagine how that would make you feel and do some research into this stuff, man, because this it, it's out there. There's a lot, you know, you're not going to hear it on CNN. You're not going to hear it on Fox. You're not going to hear it on MSNBC. But, um, you know, I would recommend, like I said, listen to Scott Horton, listen to Dave Smith, listen to Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus Russell is a great one. I can't wait for his book uh, on American foreign policy to come out if it ever does. Um, just I'm, I'm sure it will, but it's taken a long time. I hope it happens soon. Um, you know, get look into these things, people, because there's there are atrocities happening right now and. All it takes is the light being shined on those atrocities, and I think that they could come to an end. In my country there is problem, and that problem is transport. It takes very, very long, because Kazakhstan is big. Throw transport down the well So my country can be free So my country can be free We must make travel easy Then we have a big party In my country there is problem And that problem is the Jew They take everybody money
It's a fucking joke. Don't cancel me.